studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You've been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is use every eighth episode of this podcast to talk about Smallville. You see, boys and girls, I follow a pretty simple format for my show when you really think about it. There are six episodes where I talk about pretty much anything I want. The seventh episode... Typically what I do is I use that to get together with Chris Honeywell for a kind of free-form type of discussion, but that's sort of been hit and miss at times, but anyway. And then the eighth episode is all about Smallville. And after that, I start all over again with another six episodes about anything I want, a seventh episode with Honeywell, another episode about Smallville, so on and so forth. Now... Lately, I've been working my way through the fifth season of Smallville, and this is all part of Smallville Phase 2. The first three seasons of the show are basically what you might call Smallville Phase 1. Smallville Phase 2 starts with the dreaded fourth season and goes right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. And if you want to know why the dreaded fourth season is in fact so dreaded, Go back and listen to episodes 142, 150, 158, 166, and 174. But anyway, when it comes to the fifth season of the show, guys, I was barely on board with Smallville anymore by the time this season started. And the reason for that is because the pain, the pain of the dreaded season four stuck with me. Relatively speaking, it's only been a little recently that I've been able to really enjoy the fifth season. And a lot of progression gets made here 
The first season contained a lot of universe building. Arguably too much universe building. You could say that season one had a bit too much emphasis on plot rather than character. And I've outlined why that might be back when I was working on my season one retrospective. So if you're interested in answers on that, go check those episodes out. But my point is Clark could usually be assumed to be mostly in the right during the first season. If Clark says or does something, by and large, that's the right thing for him to have said or done. Not always, but usually. That got tossed aside in the second season, and for the first time, the viewer was allowed to see Clark struggling against his own fallibility. I think it could be argued that his virtually flawless decision-making processes in the first season lulled him, and I guess on that basis lulled the viewer into a false sense of security. Because of that, and possibly because Clark's world had begun changing around him, he was usually caught off guard by people, by situations, and by life in general during the second season. During the mighty season three, Clark frequently had to live with the consequences of his decisions. If he screwed up, the aftermath of his stupidity was real, lasting, and usually pretty fucking harmful. If he screwed up at something or made the wrong call, he rarely got a second chance. He either got it right the first time, or else he didn't get it right at all. Now, getting into the dreaded season four, the idea that Al Goff and Miles Miller had was to lighten the mood of Smallville as a TV show. The Mighty Season 3 has a lot going for it, but at the same time, I think it'd be fair to say that it got pretty fucking bleak in a lot of places. So part of the agenda for the dreaded Season 4 was to brighten things up a little bit, but another issue going on in the dreaded Season 4 was showing Clark's growing sense of independence. He made a lot of mistakes in the second season. And then he had to live with the consequences of those mistakes during the mighty season three. So in the dreaded season four, Clark had nowhere to go but up. But beyond that, he was finally coming into a stage in life when he'd finally seen himself at his worst and at his best. And the driving sort of takeaway lesson that he took from all of that was that his actions matter. And the fact is that he has to make decisions that literally nobody can help him with. For everything else I could say about the dreaded season four, Clark began to understand that his judgment is as fallible as anybody else's. But at the end of the day, he's the only one who can make the choices that he has to make. And so as it relates to the fifth season, Clark made a choice regarding his powers that is completely understandable considering all the bullshit that he's been through over the last couple of years. He decided to let his powers go at the end of Arrival, and in short order, he discovered that he needs his powers. But beyond that, the town of Smallville needs him to have his powers. 
two whole episodes were spent on that lesson, so this isn't small potatoes, people. But that's not all that the fifth season has done so far. It's begun broadening Clark's horizons, and he started getting an idea that the challenges of the real world are oftentimes a lot more complicated than he ever thought. The process has already started, and the batch of episodes we're talking about this time around will only entrench those lessons even deeper. The one thing Clark can be sure of is that the good old days of high school are firmly behind him. And therein is the challenge. As the show progresses, we're going to get a pretty good idea of exactly what's holding Clark back. The hints start getting dropped right here in the fifth season. It's a trickle at first, but more and more and more come along as this season unfolds. Now, I've said before that Smallville Phase 2 began with the dreaded Season 4. The start of Phase 2 is marked by Smallville reaching its visual zenith. From the dreaded Season 4 through the end of the sainted Season 7, Smallville never looked this good before, and for the most part, it had never looked this good again either. As an example, I point back to basically any of the Fortress of Solitude scenes from the first four episodes of this, the fifth season. There's really nothing in reality that resembles those Fortress of Solitude scenes, but man, those scenes are just fucking gorgeous. Smallville's days as a relatively grounded show are behind us, and from here on in, the series is going to become more and more fantasy-oriented as time goes by. That was true, starting with the dreaded season 4, and it gets reinforced this season both in terms of story, but especially in terms of cinematography and visuals. Now, yes, Smallville Phase 2 got off to a pretty fucking rocky start, but nevertheless, this is still Smallville's prime. And not just from an aesthetic standpoint, either. Everything that makes Smallville awesome can be found, to some degree or another, during the, starting from the dreaded Season 4, going right on through to the sainted Season 7. So, without question, Smallville Phase 2 is my favorite era of the show. And with the fifth season, we are finally talking about quality material. So as a result, I'm a lot more excited about these Smallville retrospectives than I've ever been before. Now, before we move into the analysis proper, I've just got one other point that I want to make. Some of you have noticed a pretty big difference in sound quality in these opening monologues as compared to the analysis section of these episodes. In short, the opening monologue sounds just a little bit better audio quality-wise than the main portion of the episode. And so a logical question to ask is, why is that? The explanation for that is because I recorded a lot of these retrospectives ages and ages ago with an old USB headset. Since that time, though, I've upgraded to a Turtle Beach gaming headset. Just in this opening monologue, you may hear an occasional clicking sound. That's my Turtle Beach headset. For some reason, when I talk, 
there's an occasional clicking sound. But the analysis portion of these episodes, these were actually done, like I say, in some cases like a year ago or two years ago, using that older headset. And so these opening monologues are actually the last thing that I record before I release these shows. Now, I know that sounds weird. It's the last thing I record, but it's the first thing you hear. What could you do? But nevertheless, that is how things are. So the these retrospectives, the actual analysis, the stuff that you're about to hear where I talk about these episodes, that stuff might have been recorded in some cases like a year and a half ago, y'all. Whereas this this introduction that I'm recording right now is of a lot more recent vintage, hence the difference in sound quality. And now you know. Anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, last time I finished up my comments with Aqua, and you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 5, beginning with Episode 5, Thirst, after these messages. everybody, Magnus here. I do a show called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, wherein I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But let's cut the crap, alright? Mostly I spend most of my time talking about comics because, honestly, comics are my first love. So, beginning in March 2017, I'm going to change things up a little bit. I'm going to be joined by Rebecca Johnson to talk about Harry Potter movies. Three. Three Harry Potter movies. Rebecca Johnson will be joining in to discuss The Sorcerer's Stone, The Chamber of Secrets, and The Prisoner of Azkaban. But that's not all that's going on. Also joining in is Professor Allen to talk about the three Chris Nolan Batman movies. Yes, indeedy, we're hashing through Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. Six episodes, six movies, two guest hosts, one regular host, which is to say me, Magnus, and the fun starts on March 7th, 2017. Only at twotruefreaks.com or iTunes or whichever obscure Japanese webpage that syndicates my show without my authorization for some reason. I don't really have a problem with that, you understand? It's just, it's kind of weird. That's all I'm saying. But whatever. Six movies. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Batman Begins, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, The Dark Knight, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and The Dark Knight Rises. You got that this mega series is starting in March, right? Just making sure.
this is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Continuing my retrospective of Smallville's fifth season. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that a central issue in these episodes is Clark's fallibility, and more broadly, how those frailties can be his undoing. There are a lot of important lessons here for Clark, and my view is those lessons eventually point directly to issues that Clark's got to resolve before he can truly be ready to become Superman. But to start everything off, first comes episode five, Thirst. Vampires. And that's about as much of a summary as this episode deserves, to be perfectly honest with you. What happened to her? She was bitten. By what? I know how this is gonna sound. But I think she was attacked by a vampire. Clark, there's no such thing as vampires. I know what I saw, Professor. She's lost a lot of blood. And the transfusion didn't work because she's infected by some weird strain of rabies. Rabies? Now, if ever there was a time to invoke the stray clause from season one and say that I just don't like an episode and skip it, Thirst is pretty much the gold standard, because Thirst, as an episode, is fucking atrocious. In some parts of the world, Thirst might even be considered a weapon of mass destruction. It's that fucking bad. But does that mean there's absolutely no merit to it? I don't know. I don't think so. Now, don't get me wrong. Thirst, as an episode, is one of those things that's pretty much impossible to defend. I mean, hell, even Goff and Miller were willing to go on the record saying Thirst is probably the single worst episode of the entire show, which is to say the series at large. Their DVD commentary for Thirst was unofficially subtitled, What the Hell Were We Thinking? It should be noted that the WB, the network, asked for two two themed episodes this season. One was for Halloween, the other was for Christmas. Now, I'll get to the Christmas episode soon enough, but for right now, the Halloween episode, which is to say Thirst, well, the only fair and accurate way to put it is that what this show was intended to be and what this episode ultimately became are two very fucking different things. Now, I don't want to turn this part of the retrospective into a commentary on their commentary, but Miller says in the Thirst commentary that the reaction that fans had to Thirst was surprisingly positive. He said that people seemed to enjoy it, which he found utterly stupefying. Honestly, I have no idea where Miller saw such positivity because the reaction I had and the only reaction I can remember seeing to Thirst 
was unanimously fucking toxic. Now, it's important to remember where we are now in Smallville's history. It was the height of fashion back then to piss all over Smallville at every opportunity. Now, I won't name names because it had gained me nothing, but there was a certain Superman fan website out there that was basically stirring up a lot of anti-Smallville sentiment in preparation for the release of Superman Returns during the summer of 2006. The anti-Smallville bias was pretty easy to sneak in because it first originated during the dreaded fourth season. Well, um, who the hell would notice that you were anti-Smallville during the dreaded fourth season? Not I. But things legitimately improved during the fifth season. However, that fan page's discussion of all things Smallville did not. Now, it should be noted that history has since vindicated Smallville in a lot of ways, and also nearly universally condemned Superman Returns. Smallville fans had the last laugh when all was said and done, but at the time, the pro-Smallville and pro-Superman Returns wings of the fanbase were at each other's fucking throats from about this time on. Saying positive things about Smallville was simply against the public mood among fans back in 2005. And a major reason for this is because the Superman fan site in question went so far out of its way to divide the fan base leading up to the theatrical release of Superman Returns. Still, it should be understood that these aren't actual vampires that we're talking about in this episode. If that makes sense. What I'm saying is that people with fangs and shit and thirst are people. Basically, some vampire bats are infected by Smallville and pass a vampire-like illness onto humans, but they're not vampires in the usual sense. And because of that, there is a way to cure them that gets developed by Luthercore. Anyway, there are several issues here in that this episode features subject matter so foreign to Smallville that it's... I don't know, I, I just, I feel like it has to be integrated into the Smallville mythos very carefully. Stephen DeKnight, the writer of Thirst, would be the first to tell you that vampires don't organically work with Smallville, so special care has to be taken on how they're used. The other issue here is that Paul Shapiro, the director of Thirst, completely wiped his ass with all of his instructions and went for everything about vampires that's completely cheesy and over the top. It not only ruined the more sci-fi oriented uh, approach of the script, it also created conflicting tones where vampire girls hiss at the camera because they're infected by radioactive vampire bats. The cheese appeal that Shapiro wanted just didn't work with the material. The other thing that hurt Thirst was the diminished budget. Goff and Miller were pinching pennies for a future episode. Anyway, I could bash on this episode for hours and hours, but the Thirst DVD commentary is more than enough mea culpas from everybody involved with creating it that there's really not a whole lot more that I can add to that. 
First is a bad episode, and I tend to agree with people who say it's one of the worst episodes of Smallville's entire history. There's just not a whole lot more that I can contribute to that. But at the same time, there are some, not many, but some good things about Thirst. For one thing, as a tip of the hat to Veronica Mars, Thirst is primarily narrated by Chloe as she works her way through the story. Now, you need to understand, this was a strictly technical solution to Thirst's many problems and weaknesses because Chloe narrates a bunch of shit that she couldn't possibly know about or have seen. Now, the narration works for salvaging the story, but at the same time, that's, a, that's pretty much all you can really say that it was intended to do. Basically fill in holes that the story just had organically. Even so, the reason this plays for me is because when Veronica Mars first started, and I mean way back in the beginning, maybe the first couple of episodes, people saw Veronica, a cute blonde who worked for her high school's newspaper, having all kinds of zany adventures with Wallace, her friend who just so happened to be black, and thought it sure looked a lot like the Chloe Chronicles from ages ago, but which we never really discussed here. Now, to be fair, that criticism died out early on, partly because Veronica Mars was so good, and partly because Smallville was balls deep into the dreaded season four by that point. And, I mean, honestly, other people may have forgotten that accusation about Veronica Mars, but Goff, Miller, and Denight sure as hell didn't, and neither have I. So, on that basis, why not pay homage to Ver uh, Veronica Mars while, at the same time, set up a framing device designed, hopefully, to salvage Thirst as an episode? Best of both worlds. That's not the only non-Smallville, non-Superman reference in Thirst, though. Not by a long shot. This is the first time that we see the Daily Planet as a legitimate setting for a story in Smallville. Now, don't get me wrong. We'd seen it before, but it was usually incidental to whatever else was going on at the time. Here is where the Daily Planet becomes woven into, this, uh, into the fabric of Smallville. The publisher of the Daily Planet is Pauline Kahn, which is a kind of sort of portmanteau of Paul Levitz and Jeanette Kahn. And as we heard at the top of this episode, you've got James Marster saying there's no such thing as vampires in an episode with a character called Buffy as the main antagonist in a script written by Stephen DeKnight. You either find all of that funny or you don't. And then there's Luthercorp having developed a cure for this phony vampire disease called Project 1138. This reference pops up in the same episode where Carrie Fisher has a bit part. But I guess apart from pop culture references, there's a bit of meat to thirst. Not much, but a little. For one thing, I already spoiled the fact that Milton Fine is in fact Brainiac. So, finding out he's a villain as we do in Thirst might be easy for us to ignore, but a civilian watching the show would have been shocked not only to watch Fine kill somebody, but to, but to use metal projectiles from his hands in order to do the job. Aqua was the first time that Clark put Milton uh, Fine onto Lex's radar. 
But here, first, is the first time that Lex recognized Fine as a big enough threat to pay Fine a personal visit during class. During Lex's encounter with Fine in the classroom, Fine uh, tosses out hypothetical uh, scenarios where Clark discovers that Lex is basically a power-mad tyrant, and then asks if Clark would have, you know, if Clark would have the sack to try stopping him. Now, again, I've already spoiled the fact that Fine is Brainiac, so it's not a much bigger spoiler to speculate that this is an early attempt by Brainiac to drive a further wedge between Clark and Lex. Like a lot of things that Brainiac does, there are a couple of different objectives here. The first is to get Clark to probe what he's willing to do and how far and, and find out just how far he's willing to go to stop Lex. Superficially, this somewhat relates to Clark eventually becoming Superman. Just what are the boundaries that Superman has to work within to deal with people like Lex? Mind you, Brainiac isn't intentionally trying to steer Clark toward a, a, a heroic destiny, but questions like these are issues Superman's going to have to develop some kind of answer for. But the other, bigger objective for Brainiac is to get Lex to distance himself from Clark. There's a plot point going on here there that future episodes are going to develop, so I don't want to spoil too much of that here. The main issue that I'm trying to draw your attention to is Fine's intention of getting Lex to begin seeing Clark as a potential adversary. Fine wants Clark to ask himself what he's prepared to do to stop Lex. He also wants Lex to ask himself what he's prepared to do to resist Clark. Enmity between those uh, two characters serves Brainiac's agenda rather nicely. The purpose of Lex's visit to Fine's classroom is to throw his balls around, make threats, and get Fine to shut up about LuthorCorp projects. He even goes so far as to threaten Fine's employment. Not to be outdone, Fine swings by the Luther mansion later to drop off his personal file to Lex to save him the effort of digging up his past. He then digs up that Lex is using university funding for legally dubious LuthorCorp experiments on campus, but outside the official LuthorCorp uh, accounting books. In essence, Lex is donating, quote-unquote, the money to help himself to fund projects he apparently doesn't even trust his own accountants to know anything about. Which begs the question, just what the fuck is Lex doing that could be that sensitive? And keep in mind, this doesn't happen at the end of the episode. Lex threatens Brainiac, we get a scene where Lana's turned into a non-vampire, and then right after that, Brainiac drops by Luther Mansion to show Lex that he shouldn't throw his balls around until he knows who the hell he's dealing with. As a side note, I gotta be honest, I really do wish writers of any TV show would study the difference between slander and libel. Libel is what you call character assassination in some form of print usually journalism. Historically, this has taken print form, but obviously news and journalism go far beyond that today with modern communications media. But irrespective of the medium, this is one of the few instances where a journalist or news outlet can't hide behind the Constitution if they make baseless, damaging claims about somebody. There can be legal ramifications to this. 
Slander is similar to libel, except it's not done by news media. Suppose a senator or a representative somewhere grabbed a microphone and unfairly, unjustly, and with no evidence whatsoever, accused one of their colleagues of murder or rape or drug addiction or whatever else. Or hell, let's bring it back to Smallville and say that a college professor baselessly accused a local businessman of everything in the book. Money laundering, extortion, bribery, whatever else. Why, that professor could find himself in deep shit if he can't provide evidence. In such a case, the penalties could be enormous. The point here, though, is that there are circumstances where talking shit about someone out loud can get you in trouble with the law. Milton Fine, in his office as a college professor, might be in similar trouble if he couldn't prove his claims. If he could, I suspect slander is the lesser problem compared to, in this case, Lex's legal troubles vis-a-vis the charges Fine has laid out. Either way you look at it, though, by definition, Fine wouldn't be guilty of libel. Possibly slander, but possibly not. But certainly not libel. Now, to go back to Lex and Fine, this is the first time in the show that someone other than Lionel's completely taken Lex's balls away from him. Lex is accustomed to making threats and watching people fall into line. Lex has power, money, influence, and a hell of a lot of other resources behind him. He's usually depended upon that stuff, plus his ruthless upbringing at Lionel's hands, to handle most problems that he deals with. This is the first time when Lex is defeated in a game of wits. By someone other than Lionel, that is. And there are circumstances where Lex concedes to other characters, just to be clear, but it's rare for him to out and out lose. During his scene with Brainiac, Lex doesn't just lose, he loses big. And while that's all going on, Brainiac clears the pool table, which somewhat literalizes all of this talk about throwing one's balls around, losing balls, and all that stuff. And I say that because it only just now occurred to me. But Something that bugs me, though, is that Lana's guilty of killing Buffy. Now, true, it was arguably self-defense. And true, it's not like Lana was in her right mind anyway, but no matter how you look at it, Lana killed somebody in this episode. Now, she's been involved in unintentional homicides that all happened within a type of self-defense sort of situation in the first place, so legally she's clear no matter what. I say that to say that I can't even put into words, but killing Buffy is just different. To me, anyway. And if this wasn't the almost universally acknowledged worst episode of the entire series, it might have been too much to handle. But since Thirst is the the worst episode of Smallville ever, I don't know, I guess I can let it go. I mean, if nothing else, it's all uphill from here, so no matter how bad or whatever a particular episode may be, well... At the very least, we can say, hey, at least it's not thirst, right? Anyway. Now, this next little note here is... It's more stylistic and cinematic than anything, but 
Generally, Smallville shows characters' faces from the front. As a matter of fact, Paul Shapiro, the director of Thirst, was the first to use staging where a character turns his back on another character, and both of them face the camera at the same time. So, one actor will stand fairly close to the camera, while another actor stands further behind him, also facing the camera. This unorthodox technique of shooting dialogue scenes mostly just existed to comply with Goff and Miller's preference of keeping the focus on the character's eyes and faces. This technique came to be called the Shapiro because nobody had used it on the show before Paul Shapiro, but you'll notice that it's been a mainstay of Smallville ever since. And who knows where Shapiro got the idea for it. All of this is to say that there are a few blink and you miss some sections of dialogue where you see Clark and Lex's faces in profile. It's a pretty fucking rare thing for Smallville. And there are moments when it's unavoidable as characters kind of wander around a set, but generally during close-ups, you can count on being able to see both of their eyes at pretty much all times. I mention this because those two quick shots of Lex and Clark in profile are so jarring compared to what you're used to with Smallville that something just feels off, even if you can't quite put your finger on it. Another major thing is that Chloe gets a job at the Daily Planet. She starts literally at the bottom, in the basement. Now, she pokes fun at her low station at the planet here in Thirst and God knows in future episodes, but that's not the point. She got the Daily Planet gig on her own talent. She didn't need Lionel Luther this time. She got there all on her own. It's funny because this isn't the bullpen. It's not even the main Daily Planet newsroom. But it goes on to become a major set because it just looks so good. As a matter of fact, it looks better than it probably should. Goff and Miller wanted something smaller and more claustrophobic, but apparently nobody listened because the Daily Planet set in the basement is pretty big and expansive. It ends up sticking around for the rest of the show's run, and the Daily Planet becomes a major location for the series. Something else, as I've said before, people bash all over Smallville's perceived lack of continuity and serialized storytelling, but during Chloe's job interview with Pauline, she asks a staff reporter about the status of the piece about Senator Jennings. I couldn't ask for a better transition into Exposed, Episode 6. Lex announces his bid for a state senate seat currently held by Jack Jennings, a lifelong friend of the Kent family. Coincidentally, Jack's linked to a scandal involving a young stripper's murder and his campaign for re-election crumbles. As I remember, this episode met with a m kind of mixed reaction among fans. Oddly enough, they all seem to kind of dig on the different Dukes of Hazard references. And let's face it, this was a safe time to riff on the Dukes of Hazard. The remake film had come out over this past summer, 2005, and pretty much landed with a thud, at least as far as critical reception goes. I think the movie was a modest hit overall, but I think by and large, it left people a little cold. Exposed came at a good time because whether people were fans of the movie or not, 
they could still appreciate the visual of John Schneider and Tom Wopat racing around in a Dodge Charger for a long dialogue scene. Smallville could capitalize on a lot of familiar Dukes of, ha Dukes of Hazzard imagery, really without risking all that much in the process. Speaking of which, Exposed doesn't have that one obvious shot of John Schneider driving the car all wild and crazy. They tend to use quick cuts and brief glimpses and things like that, but if you look close, you can see that it's actually Schneider doing the driving. He really can drive that way thanks to all of his experience from the Dukes of Hazzard. Watch closely and you'll see that that really is John Schneider in a lot of those shots. Anyway, as to the episode itself, I'm going to start off with my nitpicks first. One thing about Exposed that's always kind of bothered me is the fairly warm reception Clark received when he stopped by Luther Mansion. There was a serious emergency going on with Thirst, so you can buy that Lex and Clark would look past their differences from Mortal in order to help Lana there in Thirst, but here, Clark drops in to accuse Lex of faking the picture of Senator Jennings and the stripper just to discredit Jennings and win the Senate race. Lex calmly denies the charges and even goes so far as to point Clark to that swanky strip club in Metropolis where the picture was taken. Now, I understand. The plot needs Clark to go to the strip club. And that's kind of a problem as he doesn't know which strip club to go to and besides, he's probably still too young to get into places like that. So he needs to be told which strip club it is and then he needs some kind of special access. Of all the main characters, Lex is probably the only one who might know which strip club it is. So that much I get. The problem here is that Lex has no incentive to help Clark. Fact is, the picture of Jennings and the stripper get, getting out there helps Lex. Even if he didn't rig anything, even if nothing's been faked, his opponent is, is strip, basically setting himself up. Lex may or may not prefer fair play, for now, but when the opposition brings scandal upon themselves, Lex would take advantage of it. Now, I guess what I'm kind of driving at here is, would it have really been so hard to bury a, a Wingate logo in the background of the picture where only Clark could see it? I mean, Clark has superpowers. He could sneak into the club without anybody knowing. That would have been the easier way to go. Now, I'm not bashing on anything, especially since this is a very small part of Exposed. I'm just saying that it's kind of hard to sell the tension between Clark and Lex when they're punching each other in the face one minute and helping each other out the next. And this kind of leads into the, the other uh, major problem that people had with Exposed. Specifically, it's Lois doing a striptease. Now, obviously Lo Lois doesn't take off her clothes, and obviously neither does Erica Durance, but Lois does prance around a lot in a bikini. And I think some people just fundamentally don't like seeing Lois Lane played super sexualized, even if it's for the purpose of tracking down a story. Now, this next is based on absolute speculation and nothing else, but here's what I think happened. Originally, I think it was supposed to have been Chloe who did the pole dance, but 
Alice and Mac told everybody involved to take a hike. She wasn't going to par parade around in her underwear like that. The logical alternative, then, is Lois. Now, I met Erica Durantz at a con once, and after I met her, she did a Q&A with several Smallville fans. She didn't talk specifically about Exposed, let's be clear about that, but she made a few remarks about being willing to do crazy things that other cast members wouldn't even consider. She also made it clear that there were several circumstances where she stepped in to do things that were originally intended for other characters because those actors refused to do them. And her co-stars frequently were surprised at how much she was willing to do. The stunts that she was willing to perform, the hours that she was willing to work, and of course, the costumes and clothes that she was willing to wear. Based on that team player and risk-taking attitude that Erica Durant showed in that q and I'm going to suggest to you that originally, Chloe was supposed to be up on that stage. She has the more logical reason to go up there than Lois does, but Alice and Mac may not have wanted to do it. Erica Durant, though, gave the impression that she'll take on just about any challenge when she gave that Q&A. Obviously, she's the one who did the pole dance, so there's no question that she was willing to do it. And as I say, I think some people just aren't crazy about the idea of Lois being overly sexualized, whether there's a story at stake or not. And honestly, there's a degree to which I really can't argue with that. Lois has come to define feminine power, agency, and accomplishment to millions of people. Because of that, it might be a little bit of a bitter pill for some of them to see Lois from Smallville dancing around on a stage. Now, me, I see it as a kind of humorous moment intended, among other things, to, pro to provoke a reaction from Clark. Again, not to get too shippy here, but Clark has an interesting reaction considering that on paper, he's not a big Lois fan. First, He's kind of shocked to see her there at the strip club, but second, he can't really take his eyes off her either. In the end, Clark gets what he came for, and Clark gets what he came for because he was looking for a way to clear Jennings, and he overhears the bouncer. You know, someone in a position to know, and with no reason to lie to the police, tell Maggie Sawyer that he personally drove Jennings home and that Jennings had nothing to do with the stripper's death. Speaking of which, it may seem odd that Clark would go so far to help Jennings, considering how many of his problems are self-inflicted. And honestly, the answer to that's actually pretty simple. Way back in the much maligned episode Ray Do from the second season, we see Clark bending over backwards to force a reunion with his grandfather. And it just never works out. You see, Clark's family is pretty small. It's basically just him, Martha, and Jonathan. It meant everything to Clark to have some kind of extended family. And who better than his grandfather, but that just wasn't meant to be. 
Clark's known Jack Jennings his whole life. He's been a friend of the family for years, and it's no stretch to think Clark long ago started thinking of Jack as an uncle. And Clark puts a pretty heavy premium on family. And if he can't have a blood family, he wants an adopted family. And if he can't have an adopted family, he'll create a surrogate family. Look at his relationship with Lex from the first three seasons. As I said before, his friendship with Lex is unusual and kind of creepy if you think of them as just friends, quote unquote. But when you realize that Clark and Lex always thought of one another as brothers, it makes a lot more sense that these two guys with basically nothing in common would hang out together. Clark long ago made Jennings a surrogate uncle, and so he's going to do whatever's necessary to find out the truth and clear Jack's name. Clark definitely finds the truth. Jack truly is innocent of murder, but the real truth doesn't leave Jack looking very good either. But, as I say, it makes sense that Clark would move heaven and earth for Jack. Lex and Jonathan, just to kind of move on to other things, Lex and Jonathan have a kind of rare confrontation. I honestly can't remember the last time they even had a scene together. But... It might have been Onyx from back in the dreaded season four, and even then Lex wasn't in his right mind. But here, their conversation is openly hostile. Jonathan's angry and bullheaded that Lex would show his face on the farm. Lex, for his part, gets defensive that Jonathan assumes he's there to cause trouble. More than any other character, Lex has always tried like hell to earn Jonathan Kent's respect, and Jonathan's never given it. But even now, Lex is trying to keep the state senate race as free of mudslinging as possible. But here you've got Jonathan busting Lex's balls about everything. This is the first time that I can remember where we see Jonathan openly state that he doesn't like Lex, and then Lex return fire without missing a beat. The niceties of the first season are long gone now. In fact, this all leads into the deeper themes and implications. Jack Jennings is a disgrace to himself, his marriage, his profession, and arguably to democracy itself. Simple as that. He's a good man in general, but he's undone by his own feet of clay. Clark desperately wanted Lex to be responsible for Jack's scandal. That had let Jack off the hook. And Lex is clearly willing to take advantage of the situation, it's true, but he didn't cause the situation. His hands legitimately are clean on this one. Lex has crossed moral lines in the past, and obviously he will again in the future, but if the election had to happen right this moment, Lex would be a shoe-in. Anyway, Mr. Lion is a human trafficker and a murderer, but because of bullshit diplomatic immunity, he escapes immediate punishment for his crimes. When you move away from all the fixed up race cars and half-naked co-eds, Exposed is superficially a pretty fucking bleak episode with themes that are, basically they come down to the fact that there are no role models. Justice is a fleeting concept, crime does pay, and heroes and heroism are worthless commodities. Still, it's interesting that Clark willfully rejects all of those things. The only victories in Exposed come from love, honesty, faith in and loyalty to friends and family, 
in spite of overwhelming odds, and maybe even in spite of evidence. Right now, Clark lives in a world filled to overflowing with moral equivalents, crooked uh, political campaigns, and bullshit legal technicalities that allow manifestly guilty perps to escape punishment. But what's interesting here is that Clark isn't deterred by any of that. And that's how he should feel because moral victories were were won. When all said and done, the truth came to light. Mr. Lyons was arrested by Interpol. Jack Jennings is out of the, st- uh, out of the Senate uh, race, but he's stepping aside because he sees a, be- a, a better candidate in Jonathan Kent. Clark solidified his relationship with Lois by saving her from Mr. Lyon. None of this is incidental bullshit. Apart from that stuff, and I guess more on the level of cool action scenes, Clark pulls an, air- an airborne helicopter back down to the roof of a building. This is another action scene that seemed to really piss people off because Clark, who looks to weigh somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 pounds, shouldn't have been able to anchor the helicopter. It should be noted, though, that he simply pulled it back down to the ground. The cable that he pulled on was affixed to what looked like a very solid post. That was the anchor. Clark was just the muscle to pull the copter back down to the roof. Now, what are the physics that are involved with that? I don't know. Super strength or not, would Clark actually be able to pull the helicopter downwards like that? Or would he more likely just shear off the landing guard off the helicopter and send it spiraling out of control? Don't know, don't care. It looks fucking cool, and that's all I can tell you. Oh, one other thing. The phony name on Lois's phony passport is Margot Neal. Margot Kidder and Noelle Neal both played Lois at other times, so to this day, I think this is uh, kind of hilarious. Anyway, so that brings us to episode 7, Splinter. The short version is that Clark gets dosed with silver kryptonite and suffers all manner of paranoid delusions that everybody in his life is working to betray him. So, yes, it'd be fair to say that this is another character-out-of-character episode. And a damned good one, too. Because these character-out-of-character episodes tend to be pretty good character studies, a lot of this stuff tends to fit into the deeper themes and implications really right from the get-go. Obviously, the pitch for this episode is that Clark is suffering paranoid delusions. These aren't necessarily his deepest, darkest fears. They're simply things that he dreads might happen on some level or another. Clark risked a lot by trusting Chloe with his secret. And, let's face it, he didn't have much of a choice about Chloe finding out, and so he had no choice except to trust her. But his scene with Chloe is interesting in that it revisits a conflict from The Mighty Season 3. Now that Chloe knows his secret... Clark fears that she might someday work with Lionel Luther to betray him. I mean, shit, it's already happened once, right? So who's to say it can't happen again? I bring it up because this is a perfectly logical thing to do within the context of Clark essentially having a nervous breakdown. 
That leads into Clark's distrust of Jonathan and Martha. And it also touches on my point that Clark knows how good the Kents have been to him. Again, they've never exploited him, they've never betrayed him, and they've always provided a loving, supportive home for him. Clark knows that, and he obviously values it. And so it's telling then that he fears losing that. And again, the perceived catalyst here is Lionel Luther. It says a little something something that Clark's boogeyman on all this is Lionel Luther. And again, within the framework of a nervous breakdown, it's logical for Clark to worry about that. Lionel's the same guy that violated him, kidnapped him, and then experimented on him uh, at Summerholt way back in Memoria from the Mighty Season 3. And that's because Lionel knows damn good and well that Clark's hiding something. Clark isn't sure how much Lionel knows, but obviously Lionel was hot on Clark's trail at least at one point. Through it all, Lana's the only person that Clark trusts. To a point, anyway. But then he imagines she's cheating on him with Lex, and then things go very badly. And that's when Brainiac unmasks himself as a Kryptonian himself. It's interesting that Brainiac worked to undermine what Clark took away from Exposed. Humans are petty, corrupt, and disloyal. Push comes to shove, they will betray one another. Brainiac's objective here was to set up a scenario where Clark believed his friends and family had turned on him, and then position himself, Brainiac, to be the one person Clark can trust. I say it's interesting because Brainiac failed miserably in his efforts. Partly it's because Clark is hopelessly content with all of his human friendships and his human point of view. But partly it's because Clark's friends and family, hell, even Lex, worked like crazy to save Clark. They identified that he'd been poisoned by silver kryptonite and then did everything in their power to come to his rescue. What Clark took from Splinter was that he's right to trust in human beings. Professor Fine? How are you feeling, kal So I didn't imagine that part. No, you did I thought I was the last son of Krypton, but you people keep popping up. <laughs> well, a superior civilization is difficult to eradicate. Why are you here? To stop what's coming. And to help you walk the path of a true Kryptonian. So I can be superior? No thanks. Why do you continue to trust humans more than your own people? Just going off what I've seen. Maybe you need to look closer. Why didn't you just tell me who you really were, instead of posing as my professor this whole time? Why do you keep your identity a secret, even from the woman you love? You've been on this planet many years, Kal-El. I had to observe you before revealing myself to determine just how much you've been influenced by these humans. You say human like it's a bad thing. Uh, just going on what I've seen. This race shows promise. But at this point in history, they're still duplicitous by their very nature. Even the ones you think you love can't be trusted. You don't know anything about this race. 
Yeah, they can be petty and dishonest and betray each other over nothing. But they can also be honest and loyal. And they would give up everything to protect someone they love. Even if they were from another planet. Kal-El. My name is Clark. I'll always believe in my friends and my family. I sincerely hope your trust hasn't been misplaced. You know where to find me when you're ready to accept the truth. Brainiac's task is to begin separating Clark from his human friendships. What he learned in Splinter is that it's not going to be as easy as he first thought. Other stuff. At first, Lana was pretty open and public that she'd seen a spaceship. Lex outright told her that she's imagining things. He said that after Luther Corp technicians stole the ship, of course, but his technicians have been stumped ever since Aqua. They can't make any progress with opening the ship, so Lex decides to bring Lana into the loop. And he makes a persuasive argument. Both meteor showers, the weird and fucked up things that happened in Smallville, the crashed spaceship, that shit's all connected. Lex can feel it in his bones. Everything is related to everything else. And since Lana's the only person who's seen the ship opened up, she's a logical person for Lex to talk to and confide in. Because, hey, maybe she knows something that he doesn't. At this point, there's nothing to lose by talking to her about it. Hmm. Those camps, they pack quite a punch, don't they, son? Some good continuity there. By now, the Luther men have both had the fertilizer kicked out of them by the Kent men, and it's amusing to me that they commiserate about it. From there, Lionel goes on to give Lex some campaign advice. After that, they get to the real heart of the issue. Might be wise to avoid any more press conferences till your face is healed a bit. I wasn't planning to. Not that it's any of your business. Fatherly advice, I can't help it. But a front page story that you were soundly beaten by a jealous young lover will hardly aid your bid for office. I have a team of political advisors, Dad. Last time I checked, you weren't on the payroll. Last time I checked, Lana Lang had a boyfriend, and I don't think she's in the market for a spare. I think you know the way out. This isn't about serving the greater good, or even about power. It's about you changing the way people perceive you, isn't it? That's why you're running for office. Even if you were president of the United States, you think that's going to make any difference? Because the people who are close to you will always know what is truly in your heart. That's why Lana Lang will never love you, son. And we come to it at last. Lex having a thing for Lana has been implied on several occasions. But this is the first time it's ever been made explicit. This is one of those plot points that probably would have found a warmer reception if Lana hadn't constantly been portrayed as the object of everybody's desire ever since the pilot episode. Whether it's kryptonite freaks, Clark, Whitney, Jason, or others, it seems like everybody at some point or another has pursued Lana in various ways. So 
the fact that Lex was just another, he, he became just another name on that list, that kind of fell flat for me. Now, true, Love for Lana does account for a lot of Lex's actions over the course of the series, and especially right here in this episode. I mean, you could rationalize that Lex helping Clark was a way to impress Lana. That doesn't really explain what Lex was up to and exposed, but I've already said my piece about that. The point is that the concept of Lex being in love with Lana was made explicit here for a reason. It's going to be paid off later in the season. It's no spoiler to say that since the material, it, the material itself demands that. I just want to raise awareness now that originally I wasn't very friendly to this plot point. But with the benefit of hindsight, well, I still don't like it, but at the same time, I can argue where it goes to character. I mean, less so right now, especially right now. But before too long, we'll see Lex's fascination with Lana laid out on a slab. And by the time we reach that point, well, it'll be a relatively creepy character study, put it that way. Something else. It comes out in this episode that Chloe's been trading emails with Lionel Luther. He's been dishing the dirt about Lex's campaign for the state senate. He's taking sides against his own son, and he's feeding information to Chloe in order to do it. Lionel and Chloe have both come a long way. And I should repeat for those who may not have heard previous episodes that Lionel did not blow up Chloe's safe house. This is one of those pernicious misunderstandings that's followed Smallville around for over ten fucking years now. I don't want to go so far as to call it a lie, since I'm not sure that there's intent or malice behind it, but nevertheless, there's this assumption that Chloe should run out of the room screaming because, holy shit, Lionel blew up her safe house once upon a time, and it's just not true. Anyway. Lastly, Splinter makes it official. Jonathan Kent is going to run for Jack Jennings' old state senate seat. This is one of those plot points that seriously pissed off a lot of people at the time that Splinter aired. Because, apparently, Jonathan isn't supposed to do that. That isn't what happened in the comics. Oh yeah? If you believe that, go back and read the last several uh, issues of The New Adventures of Superboy and let me know what you think. Till then, shut the fuck up. So anyway. Another thing here is Tom Welling's performance in Splinter. We're a little bit beyond the time when it's remarkable when Tom Welling does a great job with the material. Now, he was inconsistent back in the first season, noticeably more polished in season two, more polished still in the mighty season three, and by the time of the dreaded season four, to me, he'd become a real actor. So for Welling to turn in this kind of performance now isn't quite as impressive as it might be because He's long since found his legs as a performer. So that means she has sometimes overlooked just how good he is, since he won't go through the same uh, growth curve again for the rest of this show's run. To put it another way, right now, we're getting to a point in Smallville's run where Tom Welling's acting is going to be consistently good and occasionally great. 
That'll be his norm for the foreseeable future. And because of that, it's easy to forget how awkward and stiff he could sometimes be back in the old days from the first and second seasons. Still, it's important to note that he really is good here in Splinter. He starts the episode on a pretty even keel and then gradually develops more and more ticks and quirks and goofs until you really believe he, he, that uh, he's on the verge of a complete nervous breakdown. Now, he's got some help from Smallville's trusty makeup department because they made him up to look drawn out and exhausted. Plus, his nerves are getting to him and he's begun perspiring more and more as he gets crazier and crazier. But, like I say, it's easy to take a performance like this from Welling for granted here in the fifth season. You lose sight of just how far he's, uh, how far he's come in the four seasons since the pilot first aired. Back when Welling alternately looked like a deer in the headlights sometimes and other times looked like he was truly learning his craft. A performance like this is all in a day's work for Tom Welling now and, and the show's larger history, but again, you need to remember that it wasn't always like this, so kudos to Welling for a job well done. Anyway, so that's that. Now, moving on to Solitude, Episode 8. Martha's stricken with a mystery illness, but it turns out to be a trap set by Brainiac to sucker Clark into freeing Zod from the Phantom Zone. So, there's a lot of character development in this episode. Back in Splinter, Brainiac tried to sucker Clark by making him believe that his friends and family had turned against him. Brainiac evidently assumed that Clark would embrace all things Kryptonian, and by extension, Brainiac himself after that. What he didn't count on was Clark was all of Clark's friends and family rallying to Clark's aid, or that Clark would have so much loyalty to humans in return. Because of that, Brainiac decided to change his tactics here in Solitude. He used Clark's love for his family against him. He poisoned Martha with some kind of Kryptonian plague or another, and then he was able to blame Jarrell for it. Clark's relationship with Jarrell's been... I think it'd be fairly, fairly accurate to say that it's been dicey throughout the run of the show. The best you can say is that it's uneasy. Clark has no love or regard for Jarrell. The same can be said of Clark's Kryptonian heritage in general. Brainiac sees all this as an opportunity. Suppose you vilify Jarrell, paint him as a would-be tyrant, and then blame Martha's illness on him. Basically find a way for Clark to see Jarrell as somehow apart from Kryptonian society. Might Clark embrace all things Krypton after that? Might Clark turn on Jarrell after that? And the tyrant thing is a pretty easy concept for Clark to buy into. Isn't it Jarrell who told Clark to rule over the people of Earth? Clark had never bothered to ask why. He simply assumed from the outset that Jarrell had nasty intentions for him and for mankind. And this comes at a time. Honestly, I would say at, it, it's in spite of the evidence, especially in Hidden, where. Jarrell took possession of Lionel in order to rescue Clark. Clark overrules all of that with blind emotion. Martha's in trouble. And so because of that, it's not going to be hard to convince Clark that this is all Jarrell's fault, that Jarrell's responsible for it. Hey, I know how 
hard all this has been on you. How are you holding up? I just don't know how I could be so gullible. I believed everything he said. I would have done the same thing, son. I'm trying to save your mother. Luckily, she's safe now. I think the best thing we can do is just put all this behind us and move on with our lives, don't you? I'm not so sure. Jarrell's warning is still out there. Clark. Your mother's virus was caused by Fine, not by Jarrell. He hasn't done anything yet, and for all we know, he might never do anything. Dad, we both know that Jarrell's not the type to just let things go. Clark, when it comes down to it, none of us are gonna be around forever. Now, we can't dwell on that. I think the trick is to just live your life to its fullest. Make sure you spend as much time as you possibly can with the people you love. You're right. Yeah. Clark's ashamed of how easy it was for Brainiac to take advantage of him because he identifies a lot more with humanity than he does Krypton. But what's interesting is how Clark never closes the loop on that. He correctly guesses that Brainiac lied to him, that General Zod really was a would-be tyrant, and Jarrell, a man of peace, resisted him. But he never follows up on that and tries to connect with Jarrell. Now, to be fair, Clark views the situation that Jarrell brought Clark back to life and hidden, and will directly kill someone else over it. As ever, Clark's found a way to blame Krypton in general, and Jarrell in particular, for all of his problems and his choices. He has help with his prejudices and assumptions, too. Jonathan's more than happy to castigate the entire Kryptonian race because of Jarrell, Namek, Aether, and Brainiac. Clark's still feeling bad about it later, though, so Jonathan tries to comfort him a little bit. Jonathan factually points out that nobody knows how much time they have, so they should make the most of it and spend time with their families. Nobody's responsible for someone else's fate. Clark hears that, but does he truly accept it? I don't know. Doesn't seem like it. Now, something else here is Brainiac telling Clark lies about what happened to Krypton. Brainiac basically tells him the truth. The issue is that he reverses Zod and Jarrell's roles in all of that. He says that Jarrell destroyed Krypton. Now, Clark later surmises that Brainiac was telling the truth when he said that somebody destroyed Krypton. He just lied when he, when he said that it was Jarrell. It was actually Zod who destroyed Krypton. I mention this because this is the first time that Smallville as a TV show has elaborated all that much on Krypton's fate. We know Krypton no longer exists. That much isn't breaking news. But what is new is that Krypton's destruction was an act of genocide rather than a natural disaster. At the time that Solitude premiered, this was a new idea to the Superman mythos. Up to this point, Krypton's destruction was natural insofar as it was unforeseen. But I'm at a real loss to think of an iteration of the Superman legend prior to Smallville that depicted Krypton being murdered as opposed to passing away from basically natural causes. 
I've said over and over again that there are three levels of interpretation with the Superman legend. There's tradition, canon, and mythos. Tradition is how the story has been done a lot of times. But these things aren't written in stone. They're not absolute. Shit like this is perfectly up for grabs. If you want to change it, tweak it, or hell, even eliminate it, you can. And a good example of what I'm talking about here is Lionel Luther as the father of Lex Luthor, at least in the way that Smallville's done it. It was never canon, or let me rephrase that, it was never absolute that John, or, or that uh, Lex's parents were of a certain type of character. That's never been written in stone. That's tradition. The next tier is canon. These things tend to be a bit more rigid. You have the liberty to change this stuff, but you'd better have a damn good reason. That having been said, though, it's not inviolable. A good example of that would be... Let me think. Um, Jonathan Kent dying of a heart attack. Usually before Clark becomes Superman. That's been done a lot, and there are times when you can overrule that. I think to very great effects, such as the Burn Age, where uh, Jonathan survived well into Clark's adulthood. But that's not necessarily Jonathan Kent's absolute fate. Before that, it was generally accepted that at least one of the Kents, certainly Jonathan, was going to die. But there are circumstances where you can overrule that. Like I said, though, you just need to have a damn good reason. The top tier of interpretation is mythos. This stuff is absolute. You do not change this stuff, because if you do, what you're doing isn't Superman. You can call it whatever you like, but it isn't Superman. A good example of this would be Superman being an alien from the planet Krypton. That is absolute. He cannot be separated from that. Not for any reason. So, just to kind of sum it all up, tradition, it's wide open to interpretation canon it's less open to interpretation but if you change it you really need to pay it off somehow this has to be going somewhere mythos is this is the stuff that was written by god and stone and then carried down to moses uh, handed over to moses so that he could give them to the people this stuff cannot be changed what i'm saying here is that zod destroying krypton fits under canon yes Krypton always blew up from mostly natural causes in the past. I'm not sure if Black Zero from John Byrne's World of Krypton counts, but otherwise, Krypton's destruction has oftentimes come from natural causes. Zod destroying Krypton is one of those things that I think is up for grabs. Goff and Miller, in my opinion, were wise to recognize that they had leeway to establish that Zod was responsible for the loss of Krypton. First, that creates very high stakes for the fifth season because obviously Brainiac is on Zod's side. And if Zod blew up Krypton, what might he do to Earth if he gets the chance? Second, it creates a very personal conflict be between Clark and Zod if Zod ever escapes from the Phantom Zone. The death of billions of people, not least of whom are Clark's own parents, 
all the shit that's gone down on, on Earth thanks to Clark's ship arriving during the first meteor shower, and other things. All of that can be tied back to Zod. And this just works for me on so many levels. Something else is that we get two scenes here in the fortress, uh, here in Solitude. The first is uh, when Clark confronts Jarell in the fortress all by himself, and then later when he comes back with Brainiac, and then he and Brainiac duke it out. I mention it because, again, the fortress is the most visually interesting set that Smallville has. Each time we've gone to it so far, the colors, cinematography, effects, atmosphere, lighting, and everything else in there are all cranked into overdrive, and Solitude's no exception. Hell, if anything, Fortress scenes here in Solitude are even better than what we've seen in previous episodes, and people, that's saying a lot. Don't take this the wrong way, but after 800 pictures, you don't get any prettier. That's enough. Thanks, guys. How about a latte? Don't you find this just a tad sleazy, holding a campaign photo shoot where Martha Kent works? Might as well, I don't know, go out to their farm and milk their cows. <laughs> In case you don't know where your paycheck comes from, I own the talent. What don't you own? I guess now you want to own the government. Wow. Why are you so angry, Lois? What have I ever done to you? You just remind me of a lot of the pseudo-politicians I grew up around. You know, men who bought their way into office. But do you really think you can beat Jonathan Kent? There must be enough dirt on you to create a landmass the size of Texas. Please, grab a shovel and start digging. I have nothing to hide. Let me give you a little friendly advice. Bow out of the race before a pesky little squirrel digs up one of your rotten acorns. Well, thanks, Lois. You know, there's nothing more valuable than the savvy political advice of a muffin-peddling college dropout. Speaking of, do you have banana blueberry today? Now, to kind of shift gears here a little bit, throughout the run of Smallville, we've gotten hints and suggestions as to Clark and Lex's respective destinies. They're both on a path to something. Something, though, that hasn't really been addressed all that much in the show up to this point is Lois Lane's destiny. Now, sure, she worked for the Torch a little bit back in the dreaded season four, and you could tell that she that she even had the time of her life doing it, but when it was over, it was over. That's right, it. Tell me you've managed to dig up at least a speck of dirt on Lex. I'll take an unpaid parking ticket at this point. I told you, Lois, Lex keeps his dirty laundry in a cast iron hamper. Look, I might have done this at first because of pride, but as I started thinking about it, I started to worry, what would Lex Luthor do with the power of public office? You know, before we know it, he's gonna try to rule the world. Well, if you're that worried about it, why don't you do something? I plan to, but the one thing I plan on not doing is poking around inside his warehouses. I can't believe after that whole Charlie's Angels escapade, all you found in there was a bunch of fertilizer. It wasn't a complete waste of time. No? What did we manage to do besides put a scratch on my brand new car? You get to experience the chills and thrills of journalism. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't know how you do it, chasing story after story that only leads to dead ends. I'd never be able to let go. That's usually how it starts. Solitude's the first time we get an indication that her true interest isn't surfing coffee and slinging muffins. Lois wants to do something important. 
Aqua established that much, but Solitude gives her a specific target. She needs to find a way to bring Lex Luthor down. And for the first time, she sees journalism as one option for doing that. She's not exactly there yet, as future episodes are going to demonstrate, but she's starting to see some of the allure of journalism. Now, I once griped at length about journalism on this show. As a matter of fact, it was back in episode number 27. And my opinions haven't changed. I should clarify, though, that there's a difference between real-life journalism, which is to say everything I bitched about back in episode 27, and then journalism in, fu- in uh, fiction, like here in Smallville. My point is that real-life journalism isn't journalism. It's one person pushing their political agenda as much as they can with the Constitution of the United States providing cover the entire time. Journalism in fiction, though, is a lot more idealized and it's somehow possible for people to put their own bullshit agendas aside just to seek the truth. Solitude, just to kind of change gears here a little bit, Solitude also has a bit where Lionel Luther puts Chloe onto Milton Fine's trail. There's fairly minimal bullshit to it, too. By Lionel's standards, anyway. He outlines the superpowers that he suspects Fine has and then puts Chloe on the case. This tip from Lionel is ultimately how Chloe's able to save Clark's ass uh, in the fortress when uh, General Zod's moments away from escaping from the Phantom Zone. Something else is a little nod to Lex's psychotic episode from The Mighty Season 3. Lionel even uses the word shattered, which is itself a callback to the episode called, wait for it, shattered. It's... Significant of nothing, really. I just appreciated it. That's all I'm saying. And that's that for this batch of Smallville episodes. At an equivalent point in the dreaded Season 4, we were just finishing up with Spell, and were headed into Bound. After a string of very powerful episodes, Smallville damn near came crashing down around all our ears. The next episode following that wasn't any vast improvement, and all signs and portents indicated that things wouldn't be getting any better anytime soon. But here in Season 5... I mean, yeah, we've, we've weathered what's obviously the worst episode in Smallville's entire history with Thirst. But that was a one-off. Thirst's A-plot wasn't part of a larger storyline. It was a self-contained episode. It was swept under the rug, forgotten, and never mentioned again. Plus... Thirst wasn't completely irredeemable. For whatever reason, that makes Thirst much easier to forgive, at least for me. By this point in the dreaded fourth season, I was about ready to shave my head and join a monastery. So, I guess what I'm saying here is, there's something to be said for an improvement. By and large, I think season five has been an improvement over the dreaded season four. It was hard to see it at the time, though. The pain of the dreaded season four really stuck around. Some wounds just go too deep. But as you get older, your perspective on things changes. It somehow gets easier to, I guess, just be more objective about this shit. And you eventually realize that whatever problems Smallville had during the dreaded fourth season ended with the dreaded fourth season. 
We've had a lot of cool stuff in the fifth season up to now, and there's a lot of really cool stuff that's still ahead of us, both in this season and in seasons still to come. And I guess what I'm driving at here is that I've been enjoying these retrospectives a lot more now that we've gotten the dreaded fourth season out of the way. That's peace of mind that money can't buy. Anyway, enough rambling. I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. Superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world. Comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. 
If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.